Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello. And welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 52. Wonderful. And it is wonderful. Yeah, it is. And we're accelerating into 2022. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't feel like accelerating. I think we are. I think we are. Um, yeah, I feel optimistic for this year. No, I feel optimistic. It just feels like we've done a loss in two weeks. So it feels yeah. like a long time. I mean, you know, we've got things to look forward to, like a change of prime minister. Well, that's next week's news. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's, it feels like it's, it's fast accelerating towards that, for sure. Anyway, welcome to the show, uh, the Hopcast Book Show. And this week's guest is Mari Chong, who is Scottish author. It's a really um, inspiring tale of overcoming adversity and changing career. Uh, a career change that was forced upon her uh, to become a writer. But... Um, it was a wonderful conversation. One of those, oh. one of those that you, know, you just think, oh, where, why haven't we met before? I know. Yeah. We, we, if only she lived closer, because we'd have her over for dinner. In fact, I would get you to cook your ratatouille and your. Um... Well, I haven't. <laughs> Hang on, just just a second. So tonight's dinner is going to be ratatouille. Now you might think, oh, well, that's really exciting, but I'm doing it in a sort of really posh, sort of Michelin-styled way, very, very carefully with all the ingredients cooked separately and then brought together at the end. I am so excited, as you can tell, because I brought it up. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, a, a, you know, that's tonight's uh, sort of little odyssey. I'm becoming very chefy at the minute. He is, but I mean, lucky, luckily for me, he doesn't do like a big plate with little blobs and drizzles and dews and stuff. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you say that. Um, I did notice today, I was on a website called uh, uk. And there they have all the really flashy stuff. So there was, um, I, I, I was very tempted. This is one for Valentine's or possibly one for birthday. But they have a gastro, uh, you know, a molecular gastronomy kit, which allows you, it gives you all the sort of um, the bits from the science lab that allows you to make jus and blobs and, and all that stuff. Well, see, that, that isn't unappealing, completely unappealing, because I like the connection between science and cooking. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, my dad's a very good cook because he's a scientist. Yeah. And, you know, the, the the nature of nuts and bolts science that he was involved in in genetics was that, you know, he would set up a recipe for his technician to follow, for instance. I mean, he often set up his own experiments and would go at three in the morning to check the results or to set up another one. But basically... You know, he when he was looking for people to work with him, he would get them to cook. I them. love that. I didn't know that. That's yeah, yeah. Could they follow a recipe? Oh, well, that's, that's me then out the window. <laughs> right. So, you know, because, you know, the results of his experiments would only be, you know, valid if the if what he'd laid down as the formula for what he was trying to test or the slight change in what he'd done before was followed to the to the to the letter. So, yeah. So, I mean, talk about your dad. So, I mean, the, the, my fa- one of my favourite things that your dad cooks is pineapple. And I don't mm. like pineapple mm. normally. I've, I've never really taken to pineapple. I find it sweet and quite difficult to digest. 
but your dad has a scientific method to make pineapple amazing. And it's really simple. He microwaves it. Yeah. And that kills the enzymes that makes your tongue go fuzzy. Yeah. They're the same enzymes that people used to put with tough bits of pork. Yeah, so it, it does, it sort of tenderises it. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the they're very, very powerful enzymes. But if you kill them off, you get the sweetest, oh. most beautiful thing. You then chill it. Anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even introduced the program. Or who we are. No, we haven't. But anyway, Mari Chong is our guest. And I am Adrian Hobart. And I am Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobet Books. And Hobet Books is a UK independent publisher of four genres. Yes. They are. They are the following. Thrillers. Mysteries. Suspense. Crime. <laughs> it's always a different order, isn't it, every week? I know. Well, I, I kind of do that on purpose. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Anyway, that's what we do. Uh, that's our day job, uh, amongst other things. Being parents to five boys. And a cat. And a cat. And chef's extraordinaire. Well, chef extraordinaire and uh, taster extraordinaire. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's... Probably about the right balance, but anyway, I yeah, I do love my cooking. Anyway, let's um, let's get into some news before we get to our interview with Mari uh, on show fifty two of this uh, podcast. It was really actually the nicest thing about um, before we get to Mari is the fact that she listens to the program and was excited to be on it. I, so that was wonderful. I know she made my cheeks go pink because she said she it's like talking to celebrities, uh, royalty, a oh, royalty. She yeah, said. Yeah, at which point I said, "I'm well, I'm." If it's royalty, then I'm Prince Andrew. Um, anyway, that's this week's story. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be... Uh, this, is, this is a funny thing, I mean, isn't it? I mean, you look at the news and you think, yeah, Prince Andrew is and Boris seem to be have, have a pact to keep each just... other off the top of the headlines. <laughs> I think they probably should get together and, you know, go off and do something new and innovative. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, let's get into the news um, stories. Uh, it's all sort of picking up, and there's a bit more in the bookseller this week. One yeah, or two things fact, caught up with. We've spoiled uh, for choice, really. To yeah, let's about. start with a, a good news story. Um, so, a good news story: the book bookshops have reported really good festive trading. Um, and there's, there's an annual survey they do every year, beginning of the year, just to see. You know, yeah, this is the bookseller survey, and they they contacted quite a number of independent bookshops and some of them reporting sales up to 60% yeah, up on some, the previous year. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so others up to 50%. You know, in fact, they were saying most have said their sales have gone up. You know, a few people have uh, had a bit of disappointment. But the overall picture is that it's been really good. And uh, it's partly because we, um, despite COVID getting a bit more serious, we still had the freedom to go shopping. We did. And there was less uncertainty about it. I mean, the government was sort of much clearer, you're going to have Christmas, so go out and shop. Um, and I think that's that's part of it. And I think people, you know, the initial shock of the first year of the pandemic has subsided somewhat. Yeah, so people are they're, they're reading more because they don't feel quite so... Because there was, there was that sort of idea of we were in such a high-stress high situation, we couldn't focus on anything for a few months, could we? So... People mm. weren't reading, even though they were at home. But now it's almost like they're sort of playing catch up a, a little bit. You know, there's a lot of excitement over fiction at the moment. I think. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, you know, uh, they've they've the article talks about some of the books that have done really well. Jeremy Clarkson's Diddly Squat, which yes. I bought my middle son for Christmas. Oh, I've got a copy from my son for Christmas. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. I've read. I've dipped. Of dips. It's I mean, quite a quick read, I think. Isn't it, it is. It's 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 a well spaced out hardback. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's basically uh, like Clark, all, almost all of Clarkson's books 
are just collections of his articles from the Sunday Times. Yeah, but uh, it's good for someone like Josh because he wouldn't have read the Sunday Times. No, that's true. But uh, yeah, I mean, basically this year, rather than writing car reviews, uh, Clarkson's been writing about <laughs> being a farmer. And uh, actually on that subject, this week he was turned down for The Lambing Shed, which featured in the first series. Oh, right. He wanted to turn it into a restaurant. And the local planning committee have turned him down. So there is an appeal going on. But that will feature in series two. But uh, his argument is that, you know, if you turn me down, then you're turning down all farmers. And, you know, you have no idea how difficult it is to turn a crust. And famously, last year, he revealed he made £17 after a year of farming. Yeah. After I mean, costs. He, he does make a good point. But also, each case is, you know, is an in- individual. But he's not done badly. Look, Diddley Squat Farm has had queues. You know, people basically, since the f- series came out, has been swamped. This tiny little farm shop near... Um, well, it's Chadlington, Ch- isn't it? it? Chadlington, yeah, in, in Oxfordshire, mm. and uh, yeah, the queues have been massive. They had to build a special, you know, basically wait for the fields to harden up, and they created a car park which was massive, and people would queue. And um, they're, they're sort of they shut over New Year's, but the milk um, dispenser was still working uh, twenty four <laughs> hours. Um, it's 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 become an absolute phenomenon, and yeah. it's, it's a great series. And uh, look, I've always enjoyed Jeremy Clarkson. A lot of people hate him, I know, but um, he is a brilliant writer and a brilliant wordsmith. Yeah, and that should never be forgotten. I mean, really um, superb. You know, arguably one of the voices of the last of the last thirty years. Yeah. He absolutely, you know, he's he's he will be remembered. He's a personality. He's a yeah. But if you think about it, so the way he writes all of his scripts for, you know, he's written, he's done some serious programming apart from Top Gear, messing about with, you know, James May and um, Richard Hammond. Uh, if you think about some of the couple of his military documentaries, the one about the Arctic convoys and the um, San Nazaire raid, that's just brilliantly written. Also, he did one about Operation Market Garden, where his uh, ex father in law one of Victoria Cross. And they're really well-considered, brilliant pieces of history television, far better than some of the nonsense that gets made by a younger generation nowadays, where they all gush and simplify everything to an nth degree. Oh, yes. I I mean, we've been talking about this, how the the delivery of um, some of these history programmes, they're they're often presented by a young academic. Yeah. A very sort of... But they're so dumbed down. It's they're, just astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, it's rubbish. Anyway, that's my <laughs> one of my bugbears. I love history. Yeah, I mean, so, I love same here. Same here. I've been watching some of my youngest because he loves history documentaries and, and the ones we're talking about. I've actually abandoned watching TV documentaries because they have all those really bad reconstructions and, yes. and, and all that stuff and people standing outside ruins and uh, just for the sake of it. Um, because they think we have no imagination. That's right, what it is. right. You know, uh, so what I've started... To, I listen to history podcasts where you get a much higher level of intellectual exchange and debate. And you use your imagination because it's not visual. Exactly. Exactly. So um, anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> um, so another good news story. Let's, let's, let's dip into this. And this is a friend of the program, Graham Bartlett, friend to many of our authors, many, many other authors in the crime scene because uh, crime, UK crime writing scene, I should say. Um, Graham uh, has signed a book deal. Now, Graham is a former commander of Brighton Hope Police and is uh, recognised as the expert to go. F- if you're doing a police procedure or, or anything crime related, you know, and you want to check that your facts are straight and that you're doing it the way that 
it should be done or it you know he allows you some latitude and says right well for dramatic license you can cut corners here I've... anyway he's been an advisor on dozens hundreds probably uh, uh, of books peter james hasn't he so... yeah peter james yeah indeed well look he's signed his first fiction deal so that's wonderful. it's fantastic. So when we spoke to him on this podcast, he he um, I think he just about finished the book, hadn't he? Yes, he had. And he he had an agent, but he, was he sort did. Of... So he had David Headley at the DHH Literary Agency, and they've sold, uh, or rather, let's do it in bookseller terms. <laughs> Alison and Busby has netted an explosive debut novel by former police officer Graham Bartlett. Uh, the novel is called Bad for Good, and it's out in June. So uh, presumably he'll be at Crimefest peddling that. I'm sorry, promoting it. Uh, we're going to Crimefest this year. We That's, are. We booked yeah. it this week, didn't we? We did. We did. And uh, we're thinking about having an, a Hobeck event, if I can find a suitable venue that we can afford, um, to perhaps launch a couple of our books at the same time. Yeah, because we've got two books at, uh, publishing just before the festival. A number of Hobeck authors have signed up to, to be there, uh, down on the delegate lists, which is great. So it'll be the sort of... Uh, let's say one quarter of the Hobeck empire will be there in terms of authors uh, at this stage. Any others who are listening to this who fancy going, you know, more the merrier. <laughs> Come on, Lewis, get on the plane. <laughs> yeah, it would be lovely to to have as many there as possible. We, we, we're thinking, yeah, I mean, we want to have a sort of an evening with Hobeck or, uh, you know, cocktails with Hobeck or something kind of event. I've got an idea. We could invent a Hobeck cocktail. We could. The... Uh, It'd have to be chocolate orange. Pan Aki Gargle Blaster. <laughs> that sounds like mouthwash. <laughs> well, I mean, it was the Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster, wasn't it? That was oh, hitchhikers. Douglas, yeah, hitchhikers. <laughs> uh, we'll have to do an Aki related. It's got to be chocolate orange because the cat is orange yeah. and it's my favourite flavour. Okay, we're going to do well. We've got that we've had in the past and um, Jaffa Cake Gin. So if we do something based around Jaffa yeah, Cake Gin, a bit too Maria thrown in, you know. His face. Oh, if only you could oh, see his face when I said lobbing that. Lobbing some Baileys. I tell you what. Oh mate. no, 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 no. But there's some really nice liqueurs from um, Hotel Chocolat are doing. Oh, they are. Yes, I nearly got you one for Christmas. Yeah. So we'll we'll base <laughs> it around that. We'll we'll come up with a cocktail which we will serve at this event. Yes. I'm determined this is going to happen. A Hobet uh, cocktail. Perfect. Um, and we want to get obviously some other delegates along as well. You know, some celebs. Um, so we're working on that. Well, Graham Barlett will be a celeb by then. So. He will. He will indeed. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure he'll be there. So that's that's wonderful. So congratulations, Graham, and uh, we look forward to reading that. We will be. Gutted you didn't come to us, but there we go. <laughs> uh, we we did miss out on one piece of Hobeck news last week, which uh, we kicked ourselves afterwards. But anyway, we'd like to welcome Jonathan Peace. Yes, welcome Jonathan to the team. Of uh, uh, his submission was fantastic. Came along in uh, in September, and so we're really looking forward to working with you. And uh, we've got the first three books lined up. Yeah, we've actually got two delivered already. So yeah, they're coming uh, out in late spring and early summer. Yeah, uh, these are uh, police procedurals and crime series set in the eighties. Starting, it's going to go through the years. Uh, and uh, sorry, you've knocked your microphone. I've just knocked my microphone. So that's, well, that's one even old. Stevens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> go for the decider. Um, that was very unprofessional. And they're set in um, in Yorkshire, so uh, they are brilliant. And uh, we are looking so much forward to bringing those to you in twenty twenty two. And our final news story that we wanted to discuss. No, there's two, but the next one. Well, it's a bit off topic, really, but it, it does relate to what we talk about a lot on the podcast. We talk about audiobooks a lot 
for obvious reasons. And uh, there's this new story that um, caught my eye, um, partly because in my freelance work, I work on academic monographs and textbooks and um, and on an online platform. So Manchester University Press have decided to uh, venture into the audiobook market um, because they're saying that students are suffering from screen fatigue. So it's been a big movement over the last uh, decade plus, actually, of getting academic books online so students can access them online in their library subscriptions. But now they're saying that, you know, that that, that's, that they're getting, like I say, screen fatigue from, from absorbing all that information online and that some of them might work on audio. So they're, they're moving towards that. And we were discussing this and we were saying... Um, that's fine for certain audiobooks, for sort of text-heavy audiobooks, but there's a lot of academic books that use visual data and tables and, you know, things like that, because you, you worked on... I have. I've, I've narrated a number of non-fiction books, one of which was about pensions. And uh, it was rather odd sort of having to, say, refer to our worksheets, page 62 or whatever it was, you know, uh, for the table of how this works you know it was it's it's a difficult thing to do but the, what they've done i mean the titles they've chosen are uh, they tend to be i think they're around the cultural studies yeah. side of things which presumably doesn't require a lot of That's right. tabulature and and graphics yeah so sort of history um politics uh, i'm not well certain that areas of politics classics um but I think the other thing that occurred to me is is the sheer volume that they would have to get through because um, academic books are not short, are they? Monographs I'm talking about. You know, they could be 300, 400 oh, pages it, of very dense a, text. Yeah, I mean, I, I as I say, I've narrated, what, four or five non-fiction books now. Um, and they have, you know, in terms of, this is independent of Hobeck, of course, uh, they are some of the best sellers in terms of you know the number of uh, people downloading it from Audible. Um, you know, nonfiction is is actually a, a really strong market if you pick the right titles. And um, I've done a couple of biographies, and uh, but the other ones sort of more academic style books, and um, they're hard to do uh, in many ways. I mean, in many ways, I have to put on my my journalism voice, my uh, BBC voice, and that kind of works. But sometimes it's very dry, uh, you know, to try and put some energy into that sort of performance is, ha- is quite difficult. How about if you were reading um, uh, Beginning Theory, an Introduction to Literary and Cultural Theory for undergraduates? Uh, well, once I stopped putting my fingers down my throat, <laughs> I'm sure I could do it. Uh, yeah. I mean, look. There's, there's a narrator for everything. Yes, so, that's true. No, it's not not a not a big deal. I, I think I can swerve that. Um, the other story we wanted to mention uh, I, this weekend. Um, so last week I was in Newcastle watching Cambridge United, which was one of my teams, my hometown team, with my boys, and they won in the FA Cup and got through to the fourth round. Uh, yesterday was another random. You were in London uh, having a celebrating your fiftieth. Relatedly, um, yes, I might tell the story of uh, the shard after the yeah. Interview. Let's do that <laughs> after the interview. Um, but uh, I went to Hillsborough to the stadium to watch Sheffield Wednesday versus Plymouth Argyle, random game from League One, um, and I actually found it quite emotional mm. because you know I've always look. I'm a Man United fan, so there is an antipathy towards Liverpool fans that she's well known. But obviously Hillsborough and the disaster in 1989, which I um, witnessed on tv 
on the 15th of April because it grandstand cut to the images of what was going on. They were recording it for Match of the Day, but they went live. So you saw all the, the horror unfolding in front of you live with Des Lynham, I think it was, trying to make interpret what was going on. Um, and John Watson and people like that. And um, going there, and I wasn't in the Leppings Lane end, which is where the disaster happened. I was in the other end where the Nottingham Forest fans had been for that afternoon. Uh, but it was very evocative. I mean, Hillsborough is, it was regarded prior to the disaster, it was one of the largest club grounds in the country. Had a mm. capacity of over 50,000. Huge um, old school terraces and, uh, you know, real old school stadium. I mean, the stand I was in, the Spion Cop, was built in 1911. And, I mean, I, it, it came, it was such a shock having gone to many other stadia recently. Well, to go to the toilet, you had to actually leave the stand altogether, go down to street level, mm. which is a long old walk, uh, to go to the toilet. Um, it's, you know, a real throwback. And, yeah, looking down at Leppings Lane, the tunnel, and nothing much has changed. I mean, yes, the fences are gone, so the terraces, the seats are in. But I just felt the ghosts. Yeah. I really did. See, I thought that would probably happen because when you said you were going there, I thought, I don't think I could do that. Yeah. I do have this sort of... Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting afternoon. And, you know, for James and I, my 17-year-old son, you know, it's a good escape. You know, we go to these random games occasionally and we just love seeing new places and experiencing football culture from a different set of perspectives. So, you know, chanting for Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, I traditionally, as an Exeter City supporter, when I was at university, <laughs> we hate Argyle. It was on one of our chants. We hate Argyle, we hate Argyle. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't too difficult to chant for Sheffield Wednesday. They won 4-2. It was a great game. Um, anyway, this, there is a reason for this publishing. Yes. for mentioning it. The Seven Dials are going to publish the memoir of Jenny Hicks, who is, was a tireless, who is a tireless campaigner for the the victims of the Hillsborough disaster, and um, that is Jenny was looking forward to a day out with her family to watch their beloved football team Liverpool play Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup semi final. But what J- Jenny didn't know was that as she parted ways with her daughters at the turnstiles to take her seat in the North Stand, her daughters and husband went to the Leppings Lane end, and she'd never see them alive again. It, it it just doesn't bear thinking about, does it? I mean, I, I think this story struck me because I think it's wonderful to, that you know, it's not a memory of the past. It's not a, something that's happened and we've forgotten about it. It's sort of bringing it alive again because it's, mm. impo- it's still important to bear this in mind. And Yeah, it's one of the defining moments of the, um, well, the Thatcher era, really. Yeah. Actually. And the way that she sided with the police... And um, it's taken so many years to figure out that actually there were a lot of things that went wrong and then were covered up by the police mm. with the sort of sanction of the government and the sun and all those sort of things. And, the, every, you know, at that time, the culture was the fans were clearly to blame for everything because of hooliganism had been was rife in the 80s. And, you know, I, I witnessed hooliganism myself first firsthand on a couple of occasions. And it's, it was horrendous. But we've moved on as a country. And, but not and, as a government. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, let's get into well, on that that bombshell. Um, let's get on to uh, our interview with Mari Chong. Now, Mari uh, is another of the authors who contacted us when we were short of a guest uh, a few weeks ago when you were taking. I was sat in the hospital. You yeah. were sat in the hospital and put out the call, and she she said, "Yeah, I'd love to come on." And we were only too delighted because her first novel for Bloodhound Books came out this week, 
and um, she is uh, a crime fan from the sort of golden age, mm. inspired by Agatha Christie, Dodge, the L. Sayers, etc. And she uh, previously was a GP, but after um, she had her son, she discovered she had bipolar syndrome because she basically started having psychosis and all sorts of very unpleasant um, uh, mental health issues, which meant she had to give up being a GP. And writing was one of the things that she discovered helped. And a happy medium too. Uh, initially self-published, but now these books are coming out with Bloodhound. She's got a seven-book deal. Mm. And as we hear, it's just a most... There's a very honest interview, but we had a lot of fun talking about, you know, those, I mean, not necessarily those issues, but it was just a great interview, as you'll hear. Mari Chong. We're delighted you could join us. Mari Chong, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to finally talk to you both. Thanks so much. I listen in uh, regularly, so um, I feel like I'm in the presence of... uh, Oh God, I nearly said royalty, but I don't mean quite that. <laughs> that would be bigging you up a wee bit too much, maybe. It's well, funny you say that, because when I was little, I, I used to pretend that I was adopted by my parents and I was really a princess. Really? Well, I think if, oh, if, if, if I were royalty, I'd be on the Prince Andrew end of the scale, probably. Oh, so anyway, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. But thank yeah, you. I That's very kind of you. No more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, less said about that, the better. It's absolutely ghoulish yeah. and fascinating, isn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, we'll leave him with his troubles and trips to Pizza Express and uh, various other things and sweating problems. But uh, Mari, thanks so much for joining us. And congratulations, first of all, on the release through Bloodhound Books of the first of those novels that you've just released. So fantastic. It must be a great feeling to be in the hands of such experienced publishers. Yeah, I mean, this week, uh, the the book only came out a couple of days ago, and this week has been just amazing, really. Um, the sort of preparation beforehand is, uh, you know, it, go, it feels like it goes on forever, but the, the mm. final launch and so on, yeah, it's been, it's been absolutely fantastic. And I've had reviews back so far, and people have been really complimentary, and... Um, yeah, so it's been, yeah, it's been fab. I'm, I feel really lucky to have been found by Bloodhound and for them to be so on board with what I'm trying to do. Um, and it is a seven book series. And so this is just the first one. So I hope people kind of take the protagonist to their heart a little bit and um, yeah, enjoy what I'm trying to do with her. So, yeah. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that all seven books have been written? So it's just sort of a case of they're releasing yeah yeah I I have I've I've written in fact I've written the eighth one but I'm still to kind of um pitch it to to Bloodhound but um so um I went to Bloodhound really with the maybe the first four and a half books written and I had ideas for the 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 kind of the, the next three um I'm really I get really really anxious about deadlines and so I think if I'd gone to the publishers maybe and they'd wanted to sign for a longer um, contract with more books and I didn't have any ideas I I would have really panicked you know Um, so I did you know it it took the pressure off at least having some some really firm ideas about what I was doing and so they are all written and they're at various stages in fact I'm meant to be doing copy edits on books or is it and structural edits on I can't even remember what book it is at the moment so I'm in the middle of of doing a lot of things so yeah (laughs) wonderful wonderful so we're talking about Kathy Morland um as your main character Mm. 
that carries through the series. Tell us, tell us about sort of her and, and in a sense, how your own career has inspired her. Oh, yeah. So um, the series is about Dr. Catherine Moreland, as you say. She's a general practitioner, a fragile general practitioner suffering from burnout, and she's recently been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, and in the first book called Death by Appointment, as you say, it's um, really an introduction to Cathy having just been diagnosed. Um, and in fact, in her first scene, she's in a psychiatric hospital and she's um, discharged and um, kind of uh, goes for a journey up to the north of Scotland uh, to the coastal hamlet of Canavan um, to recuperate, really. And while there, um, a tragedy occurs and the village assumed that it's a suicide, but Kathy finds out that um, exactly 30 years ago to the very day, um, another tragedy occurs when a young mother jumped from uh, the same spot with her newborn child. So she begins to investigate. So um, that's the kind of the, the idea for the first book. And then um, obviously the, the, the mysteries follow after that. And Kathy is quite heavily based, I suppose, on myself. Um, so I used to be a GP. And um, I also was diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, and I, I stopped work because of that. Um, Kathy obviously continues working and um, maybe I'm sort of living my medical ambitions vicariously now <laughs> through her a little bit. Sure. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of the idea behind it. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. And that's, it's a fabulous premise and clearly wonderful setting as well. Uh, but the bipolar um diagnosis at what stage in your life did that come um well I had my first presentation just after giving birth actually and initially it was mm. assumed that I was um postnatal psychosis um and it took a little bit of back and forward until I did get a firm diagnosis of bipolar um I was put on different medications and so on and and went for spells when I was well and then finally when I was um now, probably five years after that initial presentation of, of psychotic symptoms, um, I was I was given a firm diagnosis. But by that point, like being a GP myself, I knew fine well what was wrong, what was wrong with me. Sure. You know, I self-diagnosed, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I it, 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 as I say, I put an end to, the, to my medical career, although at, the, at my initial diagnosis, I was very, very keen to go back to work and I was desperate to do that. That's what I'd always dreamed to be was a doctor. Um, and uh, it was very difficult to let that go. But I think because I, I continue to have relapses um, despite medication, I think, you know, it, it was the fairest thing to, to step away from practice for my patients and for, for my partners and, and to... Um, to leave that side of things behind and I feel so lucky really to have found the writing as a as a wonderful second career because that's what it is I mean it's it's a gift really yeah it's quite a sort of a happy medium between the two isn't it because you, you know yeah. you're, you're still living in the medical world through your writing so you're still sort of in touch with that yeah absolutely Rebecca my husband's a GP and you know, um, I still feel very, and most of my friends are doctors, you know, um, mm -hmm. so it, it does feel, and some, at the beginning that was incredibly painful and I, and I really isolated myself because it was too difficult to speak about medicine because I wasn't doing it. Um, but now I really embrace it. And in fact, my husband will often come home and, and talk about cases and so on. And 
and that really gives me a little bit of inspiration to to write as well you know um mm. so yeah it's it's a big it's still a massive part of my life and and I would still describe myself as a doctor even though I'm not practicing um yeah I think it's interesting you say about the writing because I started writing there's several reasons but one of the reasons that I did it was because I was sort of trying to cope with mental health issues and I wondered whether I was bipolar at the time and um, okay. it may be that I am it may be that I yeah. am as well as having you know as I've recently discovered attention deficit disorder but you know okay. some of the aspects of that can manifest itself as if it was bipolar yeah. um, they're very similar so I found it incredibly therapeutic and mm. in in you know it was a space that I could create myself and enter the world and you know it gave me tremendous energy where the rest of the world seemed to be sapping it and, and, and yes. sort of crushing in on me so does that is that yeah. one of the things that you've experienced in the sense of you know that it is a release oh you know hearing you talk about it in that way it's very much how I speak about it too and um you know, uh, I was actually initially advised by my psychiatrist when I was actually a lot better to to start doing a little bit of um, creative anything um, as therapy. And um, I've said this a few times when people have asked me, my mum's actually an artist, a very, very talented artist. But I can't paint or do anything like that, unfortunately. I wish I could. And I did try a wee bit of that at the beginning. And I was just so, you know, just defeated by my lack of ability and um, I'd always read a lot as a child and I I had a very very vivid imagination growing up and um, the kind of books that I read um, and continue to enjoy even as an adult are are detective fiction ones and really that's what you know I, I at the beginning I was I was so unwell that what I was writing was in incoherent mm. um but the better I um, became on medication, the more my words did make sense. And the more ambitious I suppose I became, I started to challenge myself, could, could I actually manage to write a full novel? You know, and at the, at the beginning that would have been impossible, but um, I did a few and they were ter- terrible. <laughs> I don't know what your stuff was like at the, right <laughs> at the beginning, but mine was awful. Um, but the more practice you, you know, you you do become a, a lot better at it. And maybe by my sixth, seriously, this maybe the sixth book I'd actually written, um, I, I started to to feel that I was adequate enough to try and attempt to write a murder mystery. And as I say, none of none of the the books that I wrote at the beginning will ever see the light of day. They'll still be <laughs> as a, you know, as um, kind of a reminder that you've come this far. But um, but yeah, the murder mysteries are a, a really important thing to me as well. So yes, I use it as as definitely as therapy, and I, and also to just give myself something to do every day. You know, going from working in such a high pressure job um, mm. to doing nothing is very difficult. Mm. Um, so just filling my day with something and feeling I've achieved something significant, like a, a you know a couple of thousand words, that certainly at the beginning was a a real. Um, boost to my self-confidence um so and it still is do you know I still wonder how on earth did the, those words come out I, I I don't know um but but it's certainly yeah as I say it's it's something that that um continues to be a therapy for me now you, you know even though I'm I'm reasonably stable yeah it, it is tough isn't it leaving that high pressure environment I think because mine was journalism and, and yours obviously you know GP and and hmm. <laughs> 
you know, I've, I've got a one, one or two friends who are GPs and, and, and yes, I mean, the, the, and when you, they're all at an age and, and stage of their careers, I think where they're reassessing and, you know, the burnout rate, especially through the pandemic has oh, been yes. so, so tough. Um, and, you know, the upsides and all the, but there's a certain cussedness, I think, within them because of the length of the training you've gone through and the, uh, yeah. The, all the hoops that are needed to to, to, to qualify there's a certain yeah. i'm not going to give this up i've given everything oh, to this yes. life but to step mm-hmm. away from it is so hard isn't it oh absolutely and i think it's ingrained in you from medical school that you don't let the team down by i mean even if you're really on your on your deathbed with flu or something like that do you know you're really struggling to get in oh you must battle on because it would mean letting letting the rest of the the team down um and that is a real problem actually with covid obviously that can't happen because we cannot you know that doctors can't go in um for risk of you know if if if, if they um if they caused any further spread so um that's been a change but I know um stepping away from from the medical profession was very difficult for me and as I say most of my friends if yeah pretty much most of my friends are doctors so um I think they found me difficult to talk to as well when I left because we had very little maybe in common um and so the majority of conversations are around what you know the difficulties of practice the patients you've seen um mm-hmm. the politics of it and so you're left with with what what do you say to someone who's left who's in a in pain like obviously in pain having left and maybe doesn't want to talk about what is left to say so it, that at the beginning but I think the writing has made a real change in that and I've had a lot of um old medical school friends actually fairly recently come back into my life um I think having seen me being successful and confident again and not being this sort of fragile person who's maybe difficult to start a conversation with um I uh, and I think they're really genuinely delighted that I've found something else that I you know that I can do well and that I can be successful at because I'm I'm probably a nicer person to talk to (laughs) (laughs) and more interesting probably I've got some you know I'm doing something that maybe no one from our year has done and um you know most most people going to medical school certainly don't um intend to to end up writing murder mysteries that's for sure so I probably would make quite a nice uh um dinner guest or something if we say that you could advertise yourself as a perfect dinner party guest (laughs) (laughs) they might worry somebody might not make the end of the well exactly (laughs) i mean i mean it's quite a quite something isn't it to okay in a a creative sense reverse the hippocratic oath (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) although there have been some uh some notified you know notable doctors who've uh, who have gone the other way yeah i wonder if if, it'd be interesting to see if any, any of your of your um peer group whether you inspire anybody to not necessarily go into writing or writing murder mysteries but just chuck it all in and become I don't know (laughs) trombone player or (laughs) you know it's funny uh, you're saying that at this time with COVID and so on people are really jaded and so on with it and certainly in the medical profession that's true and in my peer group people really are on their knees um Mm. and yeah uh 
I, I know a couple, maybe not from my year, but, but maybe 10 years older who are, are choosing reti early retirement because it is just so exhausting. And I hope they go on to do something, you know, really, <laughs> really fulfilling and enjoyable and creative, maybe. I don't know. But, um, do you know, medical people are funny. And I, I, I would say that out of my, out of my group anyway, um, a lot of people are multi-talented, you know, that it's not yes. just the, the academic thing. And a lot of people are musicians or, or creative in some way. Um, it's very rare that you'll just have one, you know, one science kind of uh, gift. Um, most people are pretty much all rounders. Certainly the general practitioners, I would say that's true um, because you are a bit of an all rounder at everything. And, and yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> but have you made some new writer friends as well so oh so many yeah I mean that's been one brilliant thing about Bloodhound is um it's a nice tight group and you really do feel that people are actually really willing you to do well you know um and there's there's not I I haven't experienced sort of a, the competitive side of things that I certainly felt at medical school do you know for mm. who's getting the best grades and things um writer people tend to really just yeah they just like to to cheerlead a little bit and yeah I've I've made some really really genuine friends um through the writing I'm not a big social person anyway so covid hasn't really interrupted my life a great deal I, I keep myself to myself and I'm not one to join sort of writer circles and things I have tried to do that and I just feel like I sit like a lemon at the, <laughs> the corner <laughs> <and> doing <laughs> <laughs> but um but you know the online stuff and, and zoom chats and things I've I've um I've met some really lovely folks so yeah yeah that's that's opened up my social life a little bit as well <laughs> yeah that's that's important I think it's very easy to I mean you have to be comfortable with your own company when you're a writer that's oh absolutely yeah that, that's that's for sure um and, but some 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 members of the community are incredibly garrulous aren't they you go to a Harrogate and you see the the superstars who, can, who just make it look effortless <laughs> well like we Mark came Bellingham. up with we came up with a collective noun didn't we a murder of writers a murder of writers yeah <laughs> I love it <laughs> I don't know how people do it and it'll take me maybe a little bit of guts to go to a big thing like that I've, I've spoken at one small book festival um at the end of last year um and that took a lot of guts to do but going to a big thing like Harrogate and I yeah I, I don't know how do you know I, I was saying this to um to someone else actually recently a lot of writers and a lot of readers are really introverted people yeah. so going to a big book festival do you know it's like the worst nightmare we're all awkward we all don't know what we don't want to speak to each other we don't want to you know but we're all stuck in a room and we you know it would be crazy not to have a conversation wouldn't it so you would have to force it <laughs> force it. yeah well, no that's, you're quite right that's what we were like at Harrogate absolutely so, yeah so I think some people think we're extroverts we're not at all we're both quite introverted. well that's the funny thing isn't it I mean we were retreating to our room at nine o'clock and to what starts we <laughs> yeah. were exhausted because yes. just putting on a uh, a sort of a positive public face and occasionally Absolutely. approaching like an in ranking or someone like that for an interview wow. all of our energy it really yes. did yeah yes. so we I missed all the late night stuff because we were just exhausted <laughs> no I bet a load of people would be like that I, I know I would be and I do find you know um with, I don't know if it's the bipolar or if it's just me being an introvert, but any 
big event can can just really drain me and from mm. the bipolar point of view certainly uh big events like a book launch um uh, although i'm really have approached this with great excitement and enthusiasm and I've, you know i've been counting down the the days for for the book to come out there's a lot of trepidation with it because often big excitements really do affect the bipolar and make me incredibly unwell and, and paranoid and frightened and so on. So it, mm. there's that there's that balance, do you know? Um, so yeah, um, I always I always say I want to be happy but not too happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. It's yeah, and and I've got friends who who are bipolar and and have you know uh, again these things you know they have to take things very steadily and it's sort of you know you have to almost mitigate against the you know the impact of anything you do you sort of you're risk assessing the whole time aren't you absolutely and you're also well from from my point of view and I know other bipolars are the same you're you're constantly almost um assessing your moods do you know from from minute to minute from day to because it can you catch yourself early before something goes dreadfully wrong um so yeah that's and certainly at the beginning before I knew myself and and how I reacted to things um I I was I was very careful about about things um I was very careful at noting down moods and what affected me and changes in sleep and all of those kind of things Mm. Uh uh-huh it's yeah it's it's tough but i mean in terms of you know now your new career the two Mm. things that you know that insight that you know you've been to the dark side on a number of occasions you know psychosis as you described it um you know going into those areas where a lot of people wouldn't have gone is obviously something you can draw into your your work and also your insights as gp because you have seen across Mm. your desk you know thousands of people in at <laughs> yeah. their lowest ebb perhaps perhaps at their yeah. best ebb but you know nonetheless you are seeing you've seen all hues of humanity at different states of of you know distress or you know the extremes really um and that is i mean it's it's it sounds i mean awful for me to say it but that's an enormous uh asset in a a way I mean one of our authors was a mental health nurse wasn't she she so she said very similar thing that she's got so much she might not um directly use somebody from the real world that she's come across but sort of little bits of events and people and characters come into play Mm. because she can draw on that yeah so it's probably similar for you is it yeah, I mean, it gives it the the whole series a, a real strong authenticity, doesn't it? And um, I mean, yeah, I, I would say a, a lot of the the kind of psychiatric stuff that that the main character goes through, maybe I maybe I haven't specifically experienced. So um, she's admitted to psychiatric hospital. Unfortunately, I managed to swerve that at the, at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but um, obviously I've worked in in psychiatric hospitals and you know training to be a GP and um, I've you know and I've sectioned people and looked after you know manic patients and so on Um, but yeah I mean I I do think just a lot of a lot of readers have commented um, partly about the the mental health side of things and that's been really rewarding because that's been a big part of, of why I wrote it partly for myself, obviously, as, as writing therapy, but also to kind of, I suppose, to gift a really severe psychiatric 
illness to one of the, the heroes of a story um, and to show that the alternative way of thinking that bipolar does give you um, can lead to great things like solving a murder or, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and I hope that has inspired people. And in fact, I had lovely feedback um, from a lady with schizophrenia who said um, it's the first book that she's read recently that felt real, like it was a real representation of, of psychiatric illness that was inspiring, do you know, that wasn't caricatured, mm -hmm. um, yes. which which was that I couldn't have had a better um, Bit of feedback really because that that's really what I wanted to to put across but the from the from the clinician point of view yes you you can't fail but draw on what you've seen in the past and um I yeah I I think those kind of scenes that are, are quite medical and and the resuscitation scenes that there, there will be there'll be scenes throughout it because she's Kathy is is working in a medical practice and throughout the series, I'll, I'll try and put in quite a lot of um, medical, not jargon to, to confuse people, but people do and have commented that it is fascinating to see what goes on behind the scenes and to see how mm. things are done. But also from because I write from Kathy's viewpoint a lot of the time, you're seeing what a doctor would actually be thinking as they're going through the resuscitation. And although, you know, maybe on the surface, she's looking like, you know she's very professional she's you know very much in control of things in her head you know afterwards she and and this is from personal experience as well very much having worked in a &E, dealing with a messy resuscitation you deal with it you speak to the family and then afterwards you go to the toilet shut the door and have a little cry because mm. you know and and I hope that that comes across because it isn't as um you know I would I hope I'm I'm showing the 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 medical profession in a true and and an honourable light because because doctors are human and yeah and and doctors become unwell as well so I, I hope I'm I'm doing that justice as well you know in the writing. Well, that's that's really valuable. Yeah, I think. it is. Yeah, and uh, and I think possibly you know it's it's they're being unique. I mean, we have spoken to something like Dr. Chris Merritt, who's a clinical psychologist, and obviously comes at it from from a different point of view, from a GP's point of view, you know, the, the breadth of things. I, I wondered, something occurred to me just as you were speaking, whether there are close correlations between detectives and GPs, and, and in the sense that you oh, are yeah. piecing together clues, aren't you? The whole time that <laughs> someone walks through the door. I've got the a big spot on my chin. Yeah, from, from the moment. They... <laughs> and I'm tired all the time. And yeah, no, I mean, exactly. Um, you know, Absolutely. That's, uh, and uh, do you know, um, it begins before, do you know, before they even come into the consultation room. Um, so um, as it's set up in a, in a medical practice, usually without COVID and everything, um, I know that a lot of the newer practices have these buzzer systems. So you see your name flashing up and, and you go through to the, to yes. the doctor's room. Well, I, I, my practice certainly had that and I never used it. I used to get up and walk down the corridor and call the name just so I could see the patient in the mm. waiting room because you can pick up a huge amount of information from that small part of the consultation. So you know, you can see who they've brought with them and their interaction and you can see how they get up out of the chair and you're assessing how they move as they walk along the mm. corridor. And then when you're having a conversation, it's just even about the weather as you're walking along the corridor, you can build up a little bit of rapport before they even get into your room. So to miss that opportunity is mad as far as I'm concerned. It might be <laughs> yes. quicker, but it's, it, you know, in the long run, I feel you you develop a better relationship with your patient by doing something small like that. Yeah. Um, 
And you're right, like as soon as they sit down, unconsciously you're you're making loads of little tiny assessments without, yeah, like as I say, without even realizing you're doing it. And then when they start to speak, um, I suppose it is similar to being a journalist. I'm sure you're the same, like um, you maybe you don't say anything at the beginning and you just let them start because certainly if I pose a question at the beginning of a consultation and say so what's brought you here today quite often you'll throw someone off kilter if they've yes. rehearsed in their head what they want to say then they'll they'll kind of freeze up and say oh what brought me here today oh the number 17 eight <laughs> you know and you're like oh no that's not really what I meant so you ruin the whole thing but um but yeah giving someone a chance to speak and and you usually get a better story that way don't you so um yeah, I, I do think there's a big, big similarity there between between doctors and detectives. And um, yeah, I would like to I would like to say that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm never going to be some, some Sherlock Holmes and I can't write any any of the 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 intricacies that Conan Doyle ever did. But um, but yeah, I hope Kathy's kind of uh, uh, comes across as this um, fairly um observant kind of a clinician you know someone who would notice the small things in people's um mannerisms and their demeanor that she would really notice the the little important things that might otherwise go unnoticed by um maybe someone who's uh, a doctor who's too busy to to spot it you know yeah absolutely i think it's fascinating i mean i, I i'm now sort of reflecting on doctors of my past yeah, same here. i was doing exactly the same thing thinking i know the ones who actually do come out the door yeah and the ones who the ones who don't there's a reason for it you see there's a big reason for it yeah and some I mean, do enough, say what can i do for you today they, they do some actually do lead with that question don't they they do yeah and it's yeah. true you sort of go um oh well um and then well, yeah. I, i'm reflecting on my, my when i was a child my childhood doctor in cambridge dr scott um they that his practice uh, were, rather than having a screen because they weren't obviously technologically available at the time, mm. they had an intercom, and <laughs> oh, he had this wow, really okay. strange voice. And he used to go, "Adrian Hobart to the green door, please." <laughs> green door. <laughs> and you know, you let yourself. He was a really good doctor. He was a really good doctor, and he was one of the sort of he was the inspiration behind something called Magpass, which was this. Uh, gp service that went to emergencies um on the road okay. and stuff like that so they had a sort of quick response wow. vehicles and, and yeah. um you know so you know he was he was a fantastic doctor but uh but then again you know my my current doctors are all ones who come out to the door regardless of the covid thing yes you check okay. in you know on screen don't bother the receptionists because they always make it feel like you, you, you shouldn't be there but <laughs> But they come out and see you and then they've yeah. been absolutely brilliant because i've had umpteen things sort of sort of uh result of stress and, and mental health issues that they've yeah. intervened on and supported me about in, in the last four or five years and have never ever made me feel that what i was saying wasn't credible mm, that's it's absolutely nice. brilliant yeah yeah i, I think gradually the, the nice thing about general practice if it's if it's able to be done well is that you have that sort of continuity of care that you see someone hopefully the same person if if at all possible but certainly with the 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 notes at least the the next person seeing you can can follow through where you've where you've left off but there should be there should be a um, an element of building up that rapport that you kind of would know each other and certainly with a long-term mental health 
um, issue that's so vital because yeah. because if you haven't seen that person before maybe um you might go in looking slightly downcast and and it will be missed because they just think that's you um so um very small things you can pick up um if you know someone fairly well and and that was really a big attraction for general practice for me anyway was this this sort of family medicine of knowing the whole family and and looking after them throughout their lives and seeing them all the way through to the end um and yeah that uh, as i say and also the variety of 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 work because you don't quite know it's kind of a bit of a surprise you don't know you sometimes test you play a game you know and test yourself what do you think this one's this, this yeah. is going to come in with next you know and you can quite often get right um just on on age or you know but um if if you've seen someone regularly that's that's the most rewarding kind of of medicine for me anyway um but yes the variety of the work um is is uh oh, it was it was really wonderful um like i say you don't know if it's going to be a, an ingrowing toenail or or having to to sort of uh, um, someone having a heart attack and you know so <laughs> you just don't know what you're gonna have in the door <laughs> sounds like me all over i was not describing you it, it's a thursday it must be a heart attack yeah well it was shoulder pain today it comes downstairs with its expression it's sort of down and, and pained and i think i guess in my head i think oh no um, Digestive? Is it shoulder? Is it foot? Is it cardio? Are is you, it diabetes? Is it mental Rebecca, health? Rebecca, are you sympathetic to him or are you quite a hard nurse? Are you... I think you need to answer that. What do you think? Am I sympathetic? You are. Yeah, I think you are broadly, and there are times when you're really busy and you're not as sympathetic mm. as you might be. And we Don't had an that. episode, you've probably heard this on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> just before Christmas. I came back from a football match, brought in a nasty virus that knocked me out for two weeks. And then in the second week, you went down with it. And for that first week, you were going, yeah, whatever, whatever. And not I was, quite like that. No, but I was, I was, I mean, it wasn't, it, it was the man flu level, you know, it was kind of. Oh, was, dear. Right. And yeah. then you got it and went, I'm so sorry. I wasn't sympathetic. I, last I week. did. Oh, I felt bad. Because I, 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 I had been very busy and I just let him get on with it. So when he took himself off to bed, I just let him get on with it. <laughs> but then it's when so I difficult it... to get right, isn't it? You know, you don't yeah. want to over pander to somebody and and encourage the the hypochondriac in them, perhaps. And then, but you also don't want to dismiss everything. I have this issue with my son, and I I feel really guilty now that he's he's sixteen and he's been brought up by two uh, uh, doctor parents and. He actually broke broke his arm playing football, and we gave him virtually no sympathy because we didn't believe he'd done it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I know he's had it really quite hard. I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can sympath- I sympathise with him because my mum was a nurse, and so she she basically said, you, you you're staying off school only if it's coming out of both ends every twenty minutes. Otherwise, oh yeah, out the door. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I hundred percent agree with that. <laughs> You know, I've been dealing with people dying all day, and you tell me you have a headache. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, my in my side, I've got my my father is um, well, he's retired now, but he was a geneticist, but he's also teaching wow. until recently at the Path Lab in um, in Cambridge, Cambridge University, mm. uh, as a demonstrator. And so, in his retirement, he'd go in and um, get wow. very excited about whatever he was showing the the, the part two Absolutely. students. Absolutely. Um, but he 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 is from the school of. He, he over imagines what it could be. Uh, 
because well, he, he, oh, he has a lot of knowledge an awful lot yes. of knowledge and he frightened me last summer didn't he because i had symptoms and he said you, you need you need to get scanned yeah you well <laughs> he, he, he thought you you know you had ovarian cancer obviously oh <laughs> dear um, but luckily the scan was clear but and it was i'm glad that he did make me do that make me go through the but process, it was but, you know but he's yeah. like that with everything you know i think i mean i've got a headache when you when you have a bit of medical knowledge i mean certainly when i was pregnant both my husband and i have, have worked in obstetrics and gynecology quite a bit and we've seen when things go wrong they go so badly wrong and that's yes. you know and the most dangerous time in your life really is giving birth and both of us were really on edge when I went into labor but it, you know both of us were kind of looking at each other both realizing oh this is this is when it happened you know um yeah. so yeah that that's uh, a little bit of knowledge is maybe Dangerous it's a dangerous thing. thing. It's true, but it's <laughs> yeah. funny because I, whenever I have any symptom though, now, even my mum is in her 80s and I, I, I ring her up or I send her a message saying, Mum, I've got a mouth ulcer, it really hurts. <laughs> well, that's but, you know, that, that, kind of, that kind of help though from your mum, I do feel is really missing in society. So a lot of, mm. a lot of people would actually phone their GP, Rebecca, and say, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a mouth ulcer. So we need these kind of, matriarchal figures who will give the kind of advice like for goodness sake just wash your mouth out with mouthwash or something you know <laughs> instead of it going to the going to the gp with it but yeah i do feel like and i, and I know a lot of doctors are frustrated when you when you have um when you have phone calls like that um and yeah i i, I think because because families are, are are quite different now maybe you don't have that support that you could ask your mum what you do with your your newborn child when it doesn't feed as well and and someone would reach maybe for the for the for the gp for for that kind of information which they wouldn't have done in the past you know yeah i i think that's actually really important because especially when you give birth everything is is new and strange and mm. happen that are you know, yeah. nobody's ever told you about, yeah. and you do need no. people to talk to who have been through it. So, I, yeah, yeah. I my mum and my sister, and I was lucky that um, my first two children were born um, like a sort of a, a midwife centre. Um, it was in uh, Chipping Norton, and it was NHS, but it was like a small cottage hospital. And the midwives mm. were amazing. I could ring them up at any time just for advice. Yeah. Wow, and yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think things like that. Yeah. And my poor mum, she she she's used to it now, but she has saved me lots of appointments, I'm sure. <laughs> Do you know, both both my husband and I would say we changed as doctors completely after we had our son. Because although we'd done a certain level of pediatrics and 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 so on, we had no understanding whatsoever of the difficulty of sleepless nights and the desperation you feel when your child is colicky and what you will do to sort out the colic and how far you will drive to find a magic remedy <laughs> you know <laughs> so I do think we changed both of us um after after we had um we had our son uh, we changed completely as doctors we would both say that and how we we speak to children and how we handle parents you know that that completely altered our although we had the medical knowledge to deal with the the children we just didn't have the the understanding of it you know the the real deep empathy of of struggle after having a, a baby <laughs> yeah yeah it's something else so uh, you were saying about the you know you, you having worked in obs and gobs as my dad calls it um, <laughs> we don't usually say that in front of too many people but that's what we no, call okay. it yeah it sounds horrible um, 
So I'm, I'm thought, I'm, my mind is cast back to that wonderful series uh, by Jed Mercurio, Bodies. Did you ever watch that? I did. I absolutely loved it. But gosh, it was brutal, wasn't it? There was a lot of shooting up of drugs and things in, in, the, yeah. in the store yeah. cupboards and things. It was a bit over the top. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of um, adult activity within yeah. the series. But nonetheless, um, yeah, it sort of stripped bare the, the, the potential dangers of you know incompetent um consultant in the in yeah. the case of the Patrick Balladay character or I remember it well yeah extraordinary in it as well I mean it was just brilliant but anyway yeah well, and also the, the all the all the ethics though to do with it um you're not digressing at all Adrian because I, I think that's really relevant too about the ethics of when you have um a doctor that you're working with who maybe isn't performing to the the same level that they should be how do you approach it and certainly my partners must have realized that there was something a little bit odd about me um for for a while and I was I was talking more loudly and in fact that was that was one of the first signs was I was I was I was speaking fast um and loudly um and um maybe I, I think I dyed my hair purple <laughs> which yeah, was yeah. quite out of character for me um and you know I wasn't dressing in a in a massively flamboyant way but things like that and it's yeah it's treading that line of of how do you approach um your partner without um insulting them or you know overstepping the line and fortunately my partnership was was quite a close one and and the doctors would have come to me if they were if they were truly worried about my my um my interactions with patients um and it didn't get to that stage thank goodness um but it, it could have had the potential very much that I you know and and that's the 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 risk of of continuing to practice with a mental health disorder is is something that has to be assessed constantly and if I had gone back to work then I would have been seeing a psychiatrist and being assessed regularly um you know to to be able to continue to practice because the patient safety is is way above and beyond any of my medical ambitions you know um mm. so yeah no it's an important point yeah 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 it is time now let's go back to your writing and, and i mm. noticed that you're very influenced and indeed the covers that you've got are sort of uh aping the the, the sort of golden uh, generation mm. of writers the the classic crime writers agatha christie etc um yeah. are they a big inspiration to you oh my gosh yeah so i when I was a kid i went straight from enid blyton to agatha christie when i was about like nine or ten or something um, yeah, Agatha Christie, uh, I, I think a lot of, of crime writers have probably gone through that process similar to me, that, that those kind of um, books really inspired them. And, um, you know, moving on to people like Dorothy Sayers and Freeman Wills yeah. Croft, those absolute geniuses, um, that, that's a massive inspiration. And you know, the thing that I, I I was speaking to someone else about this recently, and I'm trying to analyze what it is that makes me want to read these things and therefore makes me want to write them, because there's no point in writing something you don't want to read yourself. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I think it is this this real It's partly the puzzle solving thing that you want to beat the author at the beginning because you want to uh, you want to get to the solution before they reveal it. That's a big part of me. But it, but it is this real justice 
thing in all of the books, you know, that good versus mm. evil and, and the promise, I suppose, at the end that justice will be done. And my books don't always have um, a really happy ending, but I can guarantee you that, that the culprit will be found and justice will be done. And um, I think sort of in uncertain times like these, those are the kind of books certainly I want to read um, where, you know, it's not graphically violent. I, I can't, I'm really sensitive. I get terribly upset if I, if I read or, or watch anything on TV that's horribly violent, like torture. <laughs> I couldn't write any of that, that's for sure. Um, so they're not, they're not um, I know there's the people talk about cozy crime and that I, I sometimes have in my head those um, kind of books with cupcakes and, and cats and things like that. <laughs> and it's not that either. You know, it's it's a kind of dark. I would say my stuff is a darker Agatha Christie. You know, it's quite atmospheric mm. um, side of that, but it's not going towards um, psychological thrillers. That's too big a set for me. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's where I think it sits anyway. Um, are you a, a plotter or a pantser? Oh gosh, I'm a pantser. I wish, do you know, it shouldn't be that way because these kind of books really need a good, you know, sat, you know, you need to hit certain points at certain times. But yes. I just find, a, although, although I have a very good idea of my merger, their motive, um, how it's going to come about and so on. At the beginning of the book, I know all of those things. Once I start writing the characters, they do tend to take over. And I'm quite surprised by the end of it, how all the pieces come together. And then I can go back after my first draft and start putting all the red herrings in and so on. But oh, I'm so envious of people who have these big notice boards up on their wall and yeah. <laughs> plan it all. Oh, I'm so envious. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's possible. I mean, you know, what I mean, I obviously have not been diagnosed with bipolar, but I don't think I could possibly corral my thoughts long enough. Um, no. with that sort of clarity you know, to be able to do what it. I used to struggle with when I was at school and you were doing essays and exams and the teacher would mm. say, you spend the first 10 minutes planning your essay. No, you don't. I, yeah. I never did it. Never. I could never do it. I tried. I'd sit there, look at the paper and I'd put introduction, main essay, conclusion. Oh my God, Rebecca, <laughs> I do exactly the same. That's exactly the same as me. No, um, I no, I just don't have that kind of brain. And also I think with the mysteries like there are so many layers to it so I do have obviously uh like the the murder mystery in each book but I also have a medical mystery in it too so if mm. I gosh I couldn't do that at the beginning I I that is layered in afterwards for sure many edits afterwards I start putting things like that in. it's it's yeah my brain's too stupid for that <laughs> <laughs> too special they're just they're just yeah. different ways to work no, aren't they? They are. yeah. and I think sometimes people try and do what they think is a better way so plotters try and pants it a little bit because they think that make might make their ideas flow better and pantsers try to plot because it looks like it should be a better way to do it but as it, far as I'm really, concerned you just go as far as I can say it doesn't yeah. work go, I mean, I, we'll go with yeah. what you what you, you well messed up. I mean some very very fine authors you know I mean if you work with I mean, let's be honest. We were talking to Brendan Dubois a few few months ago, and he's been working yeah. with James Patterson, and that is yeah. plotted within an inch of its life. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and and you know, you join it's kind of join the dots, really, albeit that's doing a disservice to Brendan because he's a great writer. But at the same time, I think personally, I couldn't possibly do the. I mean, I've tried it. No, I've, I've tried, tried it. I've, used, I've got Scrivener out, and I've done oh, the, no. the 
the no. corkboard thing they've got on Scrivener. And no, can't do that. But then one, no. one of our authors, she, she I'm not going to name names, but she is a complete plotter and she Who? has... I'm not going to name. Who? <laughs> Can't angle yeah, that. No. She has her method, and her method works very well for her because that's how her brain works. Yeah. All right. It's a yeah. her. So so I, could, work, I, I can work out. Stop it. Her books are fantastic, and there's, you can't find any loopholes at all in them because they're so. Oh, no, that's that's. Well, her. <laughs> Whoever it is, I hate her. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Me, me, me too, me too. But I, I think it's really, it's really interesting. The um. I don't know how you you sort of feel, um, yeah. Standing aside f- and and looking down on yourself in the sense of being bipolar and 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 living with it, whether you see it as a, a gift in some ways, because a I superpower. see my ADD as a superpower in the sense that I see things differently. Yeah. I'm more creative than than many people who are sort of you know lateral you know uh, sort of uh, literal thinkers, if you like. And, yes. And, yes. You know, um, it's a curse and 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 at times especially socially um because i'll yeah. drift off and and not be paying attention halfway through a conversation and people think i'm very rude uh but at the are same you doing time, that just now adrian are you are you drifting off just now speaking to me not are at you, all you, no i've been oh, very no. engaged in this but they have well you've noticed you've noticed i mean in this interview everyone will have heard it i've gone something's just occurred to me and yeah, then yeah. i've gone off on a tangent and that's how yeah. i how i operate and um, I also have this habit, and it's an awful thing, uh, but it is part of the, the thing, is uh, I will start a conversation halfway through. I've already had the thought, and I've already had half oh, yes. of the conversation, and people have no mm. idea what I'm talking about. I 100% can identify with that as well, yes. <laughs> in fact, I'll have had arguments with people in my head, and, and they won't even know why we're, why we're starting off with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's that's true. So, you know, but it, it is, um, I think that from a writer's point of view, because it is a, your brain operates and you interpret, you pick up signals that other people don't see, I think, um, certainly in my case. Uh, yeah, I think it, it has taken a while for me to recognise that, like you're describing it as a gift and, and uh, a superpower. And I've said, I've, I've written about that, in fact, um, myself in, in um kind of interviews and so on and and, um, articles it it took a long time for me to see it that way and because of basically because of giving up the medical career it felt like it was an absolute curse and I hated it um and uh, yes I see it as a gift now I really genuinely do and I don't think I I would be able to write as as much as I do and as fast as I can but with that is obviously the negative side of things. So when I'm writing, I tend to be running slightly hypermanic and it's my happiest yeah. time. But it's also, as I've mentioned before, when I'm hypermanic, I'm very, very paranoid. I'm very frightened. I struggle to sleep. Um, I do have paranoid delusions. Um, mm. And uh, it's, I'm probably an incredibly difficult person to, to live with. And at those times, I, I find it difficult to leave the house and things. So... Yeah. Um, like I say it's it's when I'm my my happiest but the truth of it is is it is it is kind of a a bit of a curse and my fortunately my husband is incredibly sympathetic and my son used to dealing with it you know um but yes it does give you this um and there's so there's so many bipolar people who are who are creative you know um and even Fry uh, was perhaps the most celebrated example yeah um 
you know it, it it must be it must be something to do with the the way of thinking that that adds this creativity uh gene or whatever it is but i don't know so i i recently did um um ma in a uh, ba in fine art and and the proportion of people with bipolar disease on the on my course i hadn't really come across anybody before i did the course but mm. so yeah i do think that there is a link Must yeah be. and i think you do you deal with me brilliantly i mean there are times <laughs> though when you i think what you've just said Marie, is, is really important because there are points where it, i get to overload and my one and only solution to that is to run away and i jump yeah. in the car it's a bit difficult at the moment. Your car's out of action. Yeah, it's car's out of action. But I, it takes me half an hour and I'll I'll drive away in full of, you know, anger and whatever else yeah. and recriminations and dark thoughts and whatever. And eventually yeah. that 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 separation from whatever situation has triggered me or uh, whatever's gone on, I will come back, you know, contrite. <laughs> but but yes. you know, it's just the pressure valve thing. And yeah, totally that, yes. And it can and it be needs and a lot can, of understanding and, of people around you to to cope with well, it as well. Yeah. You know, and and, and I'm very illness. fortunate now. I don't think I had that in the past. I certainly didn't have it at work. That's mm. for sure. That's for sure. The BBC is not an environment for some, you know, it's full of people with, oh. with undiagnosed um uh personality disorders, frankly. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> especially, yeah. especially narcissism. Yes. Um, yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, you know, I could name you half a dozen uh, potential psychopaths uh, with my old department. Absolutely no question about it. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. you don't go into that industry without some sort of ego it's a issue. The creative. No, and, and, and it's funny that you're saying about the psychopaths. I mean, it's not ne necessarily a negative thing to be a psychopath. And, and I know um, a good number of surgeons certainly would, would be um, classified as psychopathic personalities. And that's why they are such good surgeons, because they wouldn't be able to do such a... Um, I couldn't do it, certainly, because, you know, it would be such a high stress environment that yeah. the stakes would be so incredibly high. It would be impossible to, to live with yourself doing it. So without those people, we maybe wouldn't have such amazing things done as well. So there is That's... obviously a place in society for, for uh, no, no, you're right. Too. You're right, because yeah. they're, they're myopia, they're inability, they're, their ability to filter out anything that gets in the way of that. And then actually mm -hmm. any sort of emotional attachment to what they're mm -hmm. doing allows yeah. them to have that clin uh, that clinical focus and, just, and and work on the skills and, and whatever else they need you know they, they can stay tunnel visioned uh, and focused on, on the outcome no i mean it's, <laughs> gosh this is, this has been one of the most fascinating interviews um i'm, I'm very conscious of time uh oh. so we, we ought to get to the, the random question which i'm sure will now provoke oh, another no, 10 I'm, minutes i'm terrified I'm, let's talk some more adrian and don't let her speak <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, let, let, it's not that bad. Well, uh, this this could be this could be a big trigger so let, let's be let's be careful here but well, I, i'm going to put you in okay i'm going to say the big words and then okay. you're in rebecca's hands rebecca's random question well most of my random questions are provoked by discussions i have with my children during the week so this week in the, in the car we drive to school and back every day so we have lots of interesting discussions in the car we were talking about um detention and disobedience at school <laughs> i was telling them they were quite shocked at how many detentions i used to get and what i used to get up to at school so my question to you is what's the naughtiest thing you did at school oh, no. yeah i was such a swat listen the truth of the matter is right i went to quite a rough school in fact and um 
I did. And I was so, oh gosh, I hope no one listening to this went to my school. I was so afraid at school that I, I didn't go to the toilet for six years because, right, <laughs> this sounds absolutely absurd, because people, I, I heard rumours that people set fire to your hair in the toilet. <laughs> you went <laughs> to the toilet. So I, for six years, I didn't go to the to the toilet school. I used to go to like the Asda down the road to the cafe if I needed oh, the brilliant. toilet at lunchtime. <laughs> I know. So in fact, I was I could tell you lots of things that other people did, but I oh no, I was the biggest swat and I I kept my head down and I was a real studious girl. I didn't do anything bad at all. <laughs> so I swerved that question totally. <laughs> no that's fair enough that's fair enough i mean mine were all very minor infractions you know like not bringing your pe kit or drawing the teachers on the front of your book climbing out the window when history was boring you know things like that but climbing out the window when history was boring yeah one time the whole class we all did we climbed out the window (laughs) well there were lots of japes at my place i mean it was an all-boys school so you can imagine but um but actually, I started getting naughty when I went to sixth form college. So the, the okay. rules have sort of been lifted. And I went to, it was a mixed state sixth form college. And um, I organized a, I mean, when, <laughs> in the lower sixth, um, it was 1986. And it was miniskirts had suddenly come back with <laughs> stripy, you know, tights or whatever, you know. Yes. And uh, the vice principal, a lovely lady called Margaret Ingram, um uh she she called together she we had an assembly for the lower sixth and all the boys were told to leave and all the girls were told that miniskirts had to stop because the male staff were struggling to <laughs> oh, keep <dear>. concentration <laughs> uh, poor men what a shame for them being distracted <laughs> yeah so i heard about this and i thought well this isn't on so i phoned the local newspaper to say that there'd been a ban on miniskirts and <laughs> it spiraled to the point where we had a protest about 35 maybe 40 of us blokes wore skirts to school um, oh brilliant uh, but it just to? happened to coincide with the visit of the education minister from singapore oh, uh, no. to, to to our sixth form college <laughs> couldn't have been any more embarrassing for the headmaster the principal oh how awful. And, yeah it was and the, the sun turned up and took a photograph and we were on page three Page three. Oh, yeah, a bunch of us in our spirits. Oh, we've got to find. We've got. To I know. Find I, that. I stayed out of the photograph, but to this day, and I became the student governor, so that was like the sort of head of school, effectively. Yeah. Um, elected about three months later, and so to this day, and I'm now going public with it. No one knew that I was behind the whole thing. Uh, but that was really? Mom, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mum, and, and the worst thing is my mum worked there. So, you know, it could have oh, been. No. Oh, no. So you've told me this story before, but I didn't know that. I, I just. I love it. Absolutely thing. love it. Oh, I need to find the photo that you need to put the, 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 if you can find the photo, you need to put, put, put it on social media. So people. I will, I will try so and find the photo. 1986, the sun. Yeah, 86, maybe 80, maybe. Yeah, I think it was about 86, maybe in 87, but. Um, love it yeah that's love the naughtiest it. I ever got I can't top that I mean even climbing out the window during history that's not as bad as that <laughs> I mean we, we did some some silly things but nothing really you know I was fairly fairly straight but, but whatever that, that it was a point of principle but I think my children were quite shocked because we talked about this over dinner later as well and you were talking about things that happened to your school and I was talking about what I did and the detentions and you could see their faces like but your parents you're grown-ups <laughs> 
and you and your your boys are as you know teachers love them because they're never going to cause trouble are they no the middle one did once because he wrote a letter to one of his teachers to point out that her grammar wasn't very good (laughs) (gasps) oh my goodness that's there's going to be trouble later in life for that i think she'll make him pay for that if it was, if it was yeah 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 she's really gonna come him stalk pay. him now <laughs> yeah, yeah. He corrected her grammar in a letter and she well, was not very happy no no i bet she wasn't but, that, that, well, <laughs> but yeah the other brilliant. two they wouldn't they wouldn't even have a hair out of place they are but you know i do think it's changed because um my son's he's in his fifth year so he's he's he'll have one one more year at school after this and yeah. I know in their fi- in their sixth year, they're actually encouraged on their last day of term to have I can't remember what they call it. It's a, it's kind of, it's like a dress down day, and they're allowed to play jokes on the teachers and things as long as they don't do anything illegal and and so on. And and they actually are given permission to do that. And I know certainly in my school we did we like put a kipper in the in the roof tile or something of the common room and left it there when we left and things like that silly things yeah. like that and they're actually being encouraged to do that now so it has changed I suppose they probably think there's no point in telling them not to do it we're probably if we just get on board then then it maybe won't be as bad but <laughs> I don't know what they plan to do <laughs> I love that it's such an an east coast scottish thing to do is to put a kipper yeah. in the roof space yeah yeah <laughs> so, so cheap isn't it <laughs> No, that's yeah. superb I, I think uh my school it would have been a haunch of venison or something like that oh so, my goodness something po- posh I, mine would have been a kipper too <laughs> that's superb well look maru um it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and, and to meet you and uh been very very insp- inspirational really and it's Aww. you know our conversation has, has uh ranged over many things but it was really really fun and very very interesting so thank you very much for your time yeah thank you Thank you so much for having me. I've loved every second. Thank you. <laughs> and just to remind everybody that Death by Appointment is now out with Dudhan Books and shortly uh, Murder and Malpractice will be your next, next book month, out yeah. next month. So uh, good luck with that. All right. Thank you so much. We come away from some interviews and just say, that was so good. We did, didn't we? We went yeah. into the kitchen, we made a coffee and I think we were actually quite quiet for a while with mm. each other because we were just churning over and thinking over what we'd talked about. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and and we love the fact that the Hopcast would give it the space to be able to have those sort of conversations. Uh, we never know how they're going to go. We no never know idea. what we're going to cover. No, all all we know is well, all I know is the random question. That's right, and that was provocative too. <laughs> Another one. Anyway, so this week, um, I had a I personally had a pretty good week last week. Yes, you did. You were very productive. I was very productive. It, it was a sort of a bit of a whirlwind whizzing round me. It was. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was an amazing feeling, and I don't know quite how that happened, but I've you know made some health changes in the last few weeks, partly enforced by the doctors, and I think that's made a huge difference. One of the things I've done is go gluten free mm. or try to, and when I haven't, when gluten's crept in somewhere. Mm. It's been a very, very bad psychological and physical effect. Yeah, and it's usually when you're out and about and you have no choice. Yeah. And it makes me really grumpy and uh, quite... Tell me about it. Another, yeah. So there have been some grumpy moments. But when I haven't, when I'm clear of that issue, the energy levels have been phenomenal. Yeah. And more, the focus. Sometimes more than me to the extent that I think I need, I need to just go sit down somewhere and have a break. Which but, is unheard of. Well, that looked like I'm slacking. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a really, really positive week. It's also been, I think it's fair to say, our best sales week ever. Yes, definitely. I mean, we, we have had a good week. You know, it's... 
it's not in the stratosphere, but... It's in the right direction. It's in the right direction, and we're doing better things towards sales, I think. Yes. We're we're getting a better plan in action. It just goes to show, if you change your mindset, which is what we were talking about, you know, focusing on sales in 2022, you know, because there are many, many other calls in our time over 2021, myriad, establishing the brand and all that sort of stuff. But actually now we're, we're, you know, we're not doing masses of, of, of marketing time, but we're it's a daily conversation it's daily action yeah. points and that is starting to make a difference and I, what, what i actually quite like is you point out to me when i'm diverting back to sort of slight a slight neglect of the marketing because it's what i'm used to so every day you say you know you need to do a bit more of that because you know we need a bit more whatever it is and i like you to do that to me mm. <laughs> and it's working yeah so. yeah so the, the, the numbers bear that out but and um, you know we're talking about slow growth, but nonetheless. Slow and steady. But growth. Yes. And uh, this week coming, it's going to be a difficult week for me. I've got, yeah, real, I've got a ton of interruptions on a medical front. I've got to have a what's left of a tooth uh, removed, and it's not going to be an easy one. It's curled around the roots of others, and it's caused me all sorts of problems over the last 18 months. Mm. And that's coming out on Tuesday. Yes, I'm we'll really look not looking to forward to that. And I haven't got wheels this week. So uh, how I'm going to get to that, and then I've got hospital appointments on in, in the week as well, I don't know. Public transport, do your best. Um, yes, it's going to be a combination. I think it's going to be a bit planes, trains and automobiles, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know how we're going to do it. But that's that's this week coming. Um, in and around that, I hope to maintain the same level of, of activity as best <laughs> I can. But it's not going to be easy, for sure. No, because um, I've just started the Writer's and Artist Yearbook uh, project, which uh, consumes me from January to May. So I'm going to be doing a lot of juggling, I think, this week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, a couple of sort of fun things. You went to London. I did. Um, so we are based in Norbury, and Norbury is in the middle of nowhere. In fact, you can't hear anything where we are outside when they're not Especially building. on a Sunday, yeah. Um, and so there was me thrust into the metropolis yesterday. <laughs> And just getting off the train at Euston Station, and I and I looked around Euston Station with with all the shops. You know, there's a W. H. Smith's bookshop, there's Leon, there's um, accessorise M and S. I thought there's more here than in Stafford, which is eight miles away from where we live, our nearest town. That is true. Stafford's got to the point where there's almost nothing there now. So Euston Station, which is just where you go through to get somewhere else, and then um, I was meeting three of my university friends. Um, in the, at one of the restaurants in the Shard, um, we were celebrating all our fiftieth. We all turned fifty um, in the last, last year. year, yeah. And the the time of meeting was eleven thirty. My train got into Euston at ten thirty. I had an hour to get to the Shard. Easy, you'd think. Um, mm-hmm. There was a little bit of underground disruption. Fine, I managed to get to um, London Bridge, more or less okay. It was there. That's where it went wrong. So <laughs> London Bridge is a big station. I mean, that's got more shops than Euston. So that, that was like being in the city as well. Um, and I looked up and I saw a sign. I thought it said the Shard with an arrow. It actually said the Shand, which is a, a street somewhere around London, London Bridge area. So I just went straight and walked for 10 minutes. Uh, it was still only 10 past 11 at this point, And I thought, I fancy a coffee. Went to Leon got a coffee, carried on walking and walking and walking. I thought, hang on a minute, the Shard's quite big and I can't see it. I can't see anything that looks like the Shard. And there is another thing to mention here. I get the gherkin and the Shard mixed up. 
So in my head, I was looking for a big roundish topped thing. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. So I tried Google Maps. Google Maps. You know how when you turn on Google Maps and you have to try and work out which direction you're supposed to be facing and it doesn't quite get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was going up and down this one street. Mm. The chap on the other side of the road watching me like a tennis match. <laughs> Luckily, I bumped into two lovely policemen, and they were they were very kind. They didn't laugh at me when I said I couldn't find the shard, <laughs> and they pointed me in the right direction. And they were really good because they said, "You go past this place, this place, this place. You turn left at this place, then you turn," and they got me there. Fantastic. So I had breakfast at the shard. You did. Uh, let me just point something out. So when you come out of London Bridge Station, you just look up, and there it is, standing above the I station. Thought, well, I followed the sign that I thought said. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, the thing about London Bridge is it is the most confusing station because, uh, especially when they were rebuilding it and building the Shard, and there's entrances that merge into different bits of London Yes, uh, that have a completely different feel. So the bit that you want to come out of next to the news building, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, and then the shard is right above you. I just went the other way. But even finding the entrance to the shard once you get to the base of it is is confusing. It isn't. It isn't that well. Well, I mean, that, that was the next really. thing. I couldn't remember the name of the restaurant, and there was three in a row. Yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> I was messaging them, and they told me the name of the restaurant, and then I had to go through security. I was hot. I was flustered. I had a lot of things with me because I'd taken my laptop to work on the train, and they asked me to empty my pockets, which. It was very embarrassing. Crisp You're like packets. Captain Caveman. <laughs> ketchup. I had ketchup in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, I got to sit down and eat an amazing three-course breakfast. Who knew there were three courses to breakfast? Served by waiters dressed in white. Wow. It was lovely. I felt like royalty again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. It's good. So I went to Hillsborough and ate the one of the worst fish and chips I've ever had. And you went... And had a three-course breakfast, as amongst other things that you did yeah. uh, in, in London. Yeah, so, it was, no, it was great. It, yeah, it was great. That's good. That's good. You need it. Um, we wanted to celebrate the one other item that was in the bookseller this week that, that caught our eye, that we love. And it's one of the most influential books, arguably, of the last four decades. I will read the first line from memory. Okay, go on. I wrote to the zoo to send me a pet. They sent me a... I don't know. What the a, first, what's the well, first one? I think it's giraffe. Okay. Or is it a frog? I He's too know. jumpy. We're talking about Deer Zoo. <laughs> Deer Zoo. Um, it is celebrating. I'm just going to get the article up now because this is um, this is in the bookseller this week. Uh, more of a feature, actually. I it think. is a frog. And the frog was too jumpy. Right. Rod Campbell wrote Deer Zoo, published in 1982. Mm. And they uh, <laughs> it has sold... Get this, 13 million copies. From Two of which I own. Right. And what it is, if, you, if you've not got kids or gone through that generation thing, you grandkids, whatever, uh, if you haven't got, you know, Dizu is a, is a book which has a tactile inside so that you can stroke the different types of animals. Mine didn't have stroking. Mine oh, was no, just you, flaps. Oh, really? Well, then you could, uh, we had one which was Oh, more no, you had deluxe version. The then. deluxe version. So there you go. So basically there's a whole load of... You ask for a pet from the zoo and they send the wrong animals each time. What did the frog time. feel like? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, it is one of the one of the seminal books for 
um, very, very early readers. It's sort of, two, yeah. Sort of two, up to three, three years old. I yeah. mean, they, they still love it when they were a bit older, though, because even though it yeah, was too comforting. simple for them, they loved it. So it's up there with the, the Hungry, Hungry Caterpillar. Caterpiller, and, exactly and then a bit, uh, bit later on, you know, the Gruffalo and things like that. So it's a brilliant book. Anyway, it celebrates 40 years. They, they've got a special edition coming out. Uh, supermarkets are also doing different versions. Uh, it's it's great. And they're actually thinking about having a festival event to, to so mark cute. 40 years. So that's going to be held in Scotland. So congratulations to Dear Zoo and Rod Campbell. Mm. You know, and, and that has introduced, well, five kids that we know of yeah. into into reading. It, it just goes to show that sometimes the, the simple ideas, because it's so simple, simple format, simple ideas. And yeah, like you say, it's tactile, but... The, the version I had, it was just you'd open the flap and you'd see the animal, and and they, children just they they love that they love simplicity. They Do don't you know need... how he, how he became a published author? I love this. Okay. He did all sorts of bits and bobs. He did a PhD in chemistry, and various odd jobs, including moving paintings for galleries. Uh, but he always harboured a desire to paint, and he was at a dinner party. Uh, and that led to his sketches being shown to a publisher. And that's how Dizu oh, was born. That's a really sweet story. That sort of happenstance chance thing. Mm. It's wonderful. It's available in 29 languages, so you don't need to miss out. <laughs> Unless you're the 30th language. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I want to read the Swahili version. I want to read the Japanese. Yeah. Uh, well, let, we'll leave it with uh, with Rod Campbell and uh, Dizu. Um it's uh, that's a lovely way to finish. And do you, know, do you remember the last one, the one that they kept? So they went to the zoo. Yeah, yeah. Blah, what, blah, blah. what do they keep? A puppy. Oh, how sweet. I've so I think that. you should write to the zoo because that means you'll get your dog that you dream yeah, of. Yeah, well, we're going to get a dog when I've written my first book. And I have been writing this week. He so has. It's been positive. And he read just one paragraph to me. And you practically I, cried. I did. It brought tears to my eyes. I mean, I was hormonal as well, but, you know, still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a good paragraph. It was a fairness. very good paragraph. In fact, I'm, you know, I was, I was pleased with it. Anyway, that's it for this week. Next week's guest. Next week's guest is Daniel Morgan, who uh, co-runs the Grindstone Literary Prize. Uh, we've actually been on his podcast. We have, yeah. So now it's our turn to interview him. And he faces Rebecca's random question he does. next week. And he's just moved to Canada. He's just up sticks and moved everything to Canada. So that will be quite interesting to ask about how yeah. that's gone. And he's a writer as well. So plenty to go out there Yes. in episode 53 next week. But thanks for joining us for episode 52 of the Hobcast Book Show. Let me remind you where you can find everything that we do online www.hobeck.net is our home. And there you can find our books, our audiobooks, details of our authors. Our latest news. Our latest news and our blog. And our future publications, details and all sorts. Absolutely. There's tons there. Um, and uh, But no puppies. But no puppies. So thank you very much for joining us. I've been Adrian Hobart. Um, he has, and I've been Rebecca Collins. And this has been the Hobcast Book Show. Have a wonderful and creative week. We'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Thank you.